Well, good job getting out of your house this morning. I hope, um, I think you're the wise ones because I don't know what tomorrow is going to be like. This might, have, this might be everyone's shot to get out for a minute. I'm glad you're here. Today, the church celebrates Martin Luther King Jr., martyred minister of the civil rights movement and son of this city, where he will be well-remembered over this weekend. I haven't preached on a Martin Luther King uh, Sunday in a long time, and our church has an interesting way of observing, because Martin Luther King is on our feast calendar. So, and you, on a, a martyr's day, you celebrate them on the day of their death, so that's marked for April. And so we have these readings and these collects um, for April, um, but this is the weekend, and so the church makes this interesting shift of observing this on a Sunday as, as well we should. So it's been a long time since I've done one of these that wasn't in the middle of the week and in an April. Um, so I've been thinking about what makes it distinct this year, which is kind of the question every year. What do we bring to it? So like I'm guessing many of you, I've been reading the 1619 Project, the book. Um, it's beautiful. And it, there are a number of different ways to describe it, but it's kind of a book-length version of the piece that came out in the Times, in the New York Times Magazine, when it was the entire New York Times Magazine. So it has that same diversity of, of, of forms of literature to read. So there's poetry, and there are photos, and articles by all kinds of writers, wonderful writers, journalists, um, lawyers, scholars, and anecdotes to remember, um, quotes to remember. If, if you had a history book from high school that was actually beautiful and did what it was supposed to do, that's what this is like. It's just a, it's a beautiful piece. And its subtitle is A New Origin Story. So as you might imagine, Dr. King's words appear throughout and in riveting historical context. So the book has an agenda, a simple one, to place black Americans in American history and more specifically to place the struggle for equality under the law for black Americans at the heart of American history, a proud through line from the beginning of who we all are. Alongside it, there's a beautiful children's book called Born on the Water. With this striking stanza among many, it's written in poetry, before we were slaves, we were free. That is also the story of the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, called the Hebrew people, in Exodus as well. They were the free children of Jacob. Free, and in a time of need, they moved to Egypt, where their relative Joseph, Jacob's son, is powerful. So we hear in the readings today from Exodus the story of God calling Moses to lead his people, the descendants of those original children and grandchildren of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and you can imagine why these are the readings of the day. The Pharaoh was worried because children, the children of Israel were flourishing in Egypt, flourishing, contributing, thriving. So he has them enslaved, condemning them to a life of abusive labor for others. So Moses tells God he is not up to the task that God asks of him. He cannot do it. I wonder if he also meant, it cannot be done. We are so small, it would have been fair to say, and enslaved so long. Egypt does not care for us. He could have thought, my words are not enough, my mind and body definitely not enough, I am not the one. And God says, and maybe this is a comic line if we were closer to the time, because God says, as we heard in the text, I will be with you, good, 
And the proof that I will be with you is that you will succeed. Seems a little bit more difficult, right? And come to worship me. It's sort of like me saying, Amy, you go ahead and go on into that dark cave. I'm right behind you. And when, you, when we get out, um, we'll thank each other, right? Basically says, go. Go. You will do it. So Moses agrees eventually, but as you can hear, not without a fight. What can he possibly do that would cause the Pharaoh to let his people go? What could he say? What could he threaten? He ends up speaking a fairly simple truth. He tells the Pharaoh to free the people. The Pharaoh says no, as we would have guessed, and plagues appear. God tells Moses that that will be their plan. Plagues, they're terrible, really terrible. We don't want them. So reading 1619 and thinking about these readings made me think of plagues as well, the ones we live with because people among us were not free and some to this day are not free. So if you listened to the forum earlier, you heard about the plague of poverty. Like all of the plagues I will name, they impact us all, not just those who they seem to impact. We know of the plague of mass incarceration, a relatively new phenomenon in this country, the plague of gun violence, the plague of violence, the plague of climate catastrophe, not too dissimilar from those plagues upon Egypt, because all of those people were tortured for the choices of the pharaoh. The people probably just trying to figure out how to live with the boils and the lice, the blood water and the locusts, if you remember your exodus. Maybe someone organized a vigil with candlelight or a special workshop or a service. What else can we do? Martin Luther King said it this way in 1967. For well now 12 years, the struggle was basically a struggle to end legal segregation. In a sense, it was a struggle for decency. It was a struggle to get rid of all of the humiliation and the syndrome of deprivation surrounding the system of legal segregation. And he continues, I need not remind you that these were glorious days. It is now a struggle for genuine equality on all levels, and this will be a much more difficult struggle, he writes. You see, the gains in the first period, or the first era of struggle, were obtained from the power structure at bargain rates. It didn't cost the nation anything to integrate lunch counters. It didn't cost the nations a penny to guarantee the right to vote, though that's probably arguable today. And then he continues, now we are in a period where it will cost the nation billions of dollars to get rid of poverty, to get rid of slums, to make quality integrated education a reality. And this is where we are now. And he adds, and we're going to lose some friends in this period. He could have written it this year. W.E.B. Du Bois in The Souls of Black Folk says it like this, like a biblical prophet. Actually, we have woven ourselves with the very warp and woof of this nation. We fought their battles, shared their sorrow, mingled our blood with theirs, and generation after generation have pleaded with a headstrong, careless people to despise no justice, mercy, and truth, lest the nation be smitten with a curse. Our song, our toil, our cheer, and warning have been given to this nation, he writes, in blood brotherhood, his words, are not these gifts worth giving? Is not this work and striving? 
Would America have been America without her black people? So today we remember Martin Luther King Jr., proud child of this city, who like the heroes of 1864 and 1964, watched a nation sign into law a promise of equality under the law, and then began to work for economic equality, a way to live and flourish, just like old Moses walking the people around the wilderness, trying to figure out what a life in freedom could mean and what it required of everyone. In 2020, we find ourselves again in a time when these questions are being asked of us. What does dignity look like? And who deserves it? People are demanding it, and we are told in the Gospels today, if that feels like a slap in your face, friends, stand up and turn your head. Face the dignity of your accuser with your own. That the space between us may become the place of opportunity. And may justice, mercy, and truth walk hand in hand in our time. And may we never be the instruments of our own or of anyone else's oppression.